Good morning. Please be opening your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16. Two weeks ago we saw Peter's great confession. Simon Peter answered Christ, who do do you say that I am? And he said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. By and large, everyone saw Jesus as some type of forerunner to the coming Messiah. A prophet for sure, but just one of the prophets. They didn't see Jesus as the Christ, the final prophet who was to be God's final revelation and the promised Davidic king who would rule forever. And then that second title, the Son of the Living God, that was a tinderbox that was loaded on two fronts. One with the Romans because that was the title given to Caesar Augustus. The use of that title would have been seen as treason by any good Roman citizen. It was a claim of absolute authority and it made a man a political opponent of the Roman Empire uh, itself. And with the Jews it was also a a problematic term because they knew that the pagan Caesars had called themselves divine titles such as the Son of God. And in their minds, uh, the minds of any real traditional Orthodox Jew, such a claim would be blasphemy. Hear, O Israel, right? From Deuteronomy 6.4, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you've got a man claiming to be God or making himself equal with God. They had no concept at that time of God in three persons, blessed Trinity. They didn't have a concept of that. Remember what happened when Jesus called himself Father, uh, I'm sorry, when Jesus called God his Father. In John 5, 17 through 18, he said, My father is working until now, and I myself is is working. And the response of the people was, For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but also he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And again in John 10, 29 through 33, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hands. And he says, I and my Father are one. And then they took up stones to try to stone him to death. And what was their reason for that? Jesus said, For a good work you don't stone me, do you? He had been doing miracles. And they said, No, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself out to be God. It was problematic on both fronts. Notice in neither of these does Jesus himself use that highly controversial title, Son of God, for himself. He was actually quite careful to avoid calling him that uh, directly and publicly. Uh, But he certainly didn't disagree with the assessment. He would say, God's my Father, but he never said, I'm the Son of God. There's just a nuance there. It's a slight difference. It doesn't have the charge with the Romans. It doesn't have quite the charge with the Jews. He didn't disagree with the assessment when it was made by others, but he never really made it for himself publicly for sure. So this week we're going to be looking at Jesus' response, though, to Peter's great confession when Peter does say it. What is Jesus' assessment of that in Matthew 16, 17 through 19? And this will be part one of a two-part series. So, and Jesus said to him, Blessed are you... Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. 
And I say unto you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, or hell, will not overpower it, or prevail against it. And I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall, be, shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Five points, um, like any good Calvinist, five points. Illumination, foundation, creation. Your, your notes might say uh, something different, but it should be creation. Colonization and delineation. I'll explain how I get to those in this text as we go. But let's begin with illumination in verse 17. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. What a confession. What a confession. He, he is excited about Peter's confession, isn't he? There in Caesarea Philippi, a city named after a Roman Caesar who was called the Son of God and the Jewish leader, Philip the Tetrarch, and Peter boldly and fearlessly calls Jesus two things. First, the Christ who would replace the crony Jewish leaders and the Son of God saying that he had more authority than Caesar himself who called himself the Son of God. Add to that the fact that most Jews wouldn't have found that, would have found that title blasphemous when applied to any man. And this confession is risky. It is a dangerous thing for Peter to say. But Peter didn't stutter, did he? He's asked the question. And he, he spouts off, Thou art the Christ and the Son of the living God. With no hesitation, with no stutter, with no fear in his voice. We might expect Jesus to say, Intelligent art thou, Simon Barjona? Or we might expect him to say, Righteous art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah. Or, Courageous art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah. We don't get any of those. What do we get? We get blessed. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. This verse should carry our, ba- our minds back earlier in Matthew 13, to Matthew 13, 16 through 17. But he tells the, all the disciples, but... Blessed are your eyes because they see, and blessed are your ears because they hear. For truly I say to you that many pit prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. It's to you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. To them it has not been given. The disciples were not chosen by God because they saw. They saw because they were chosen by God. Guys, that's true of every one of you here. If you see... It's because God blessed you. This word for blessed, makarios, it it means blessed or fortunate. You're in a happy, fortunate state. So blessed, happy, fortunate are you because you recognize that I'm the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is about mercy. This is not about merit. It's very important for us to remember that. Jesus never stoked that ego for the disciples. And he never stokes it for us either. But he made sure that ultimately all the praise, all the honor, and all the glory went to God. Even for your faith, even for your confession, God is the one that gets the glory. I couldn't help but point out that when the disciples got back from their missionary journey, they came back a little bit cocky in in Luke. This might be familiar to you, Luke 10, 17. The 70 returned with joy and they said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. They're excited. 
What does Jesus do? Well, first he rejoices with them momentarily, but then immediately he makes sure that the praise goes to the right place. Listen to verse 18 from Luke 10. He said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. So yes, you had victory over the demons, but behold, I I have given you authority. Where did they get the authority from? I gave you the authority. To tread on serpents and scorpions and over the power of the enemy and nothing will injure you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, that you've got some sort of authority over the powers of darkness, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. We should be excited not about what gifts we have that God's given us that we can serve him with power, but we should be excited about the very fact that our names are in the book of life. We're known, we're known of God. And at that very time, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit. And look what he said right after he tells them that. He, in front of them, he springs into spontaneous praise, much like he did in the doxology, like Paul did in doxology in Romans 11. Jesus does that here and he says, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and you've revealed them to these infants. Right in front of them, he says, God didn't reveal this to smart people. He revealed this to babes right in front of them. You think God wants us to be humble? Yes, Father, for in this way it was well-pleasing in your sight. Because if smart people figure it out, who gets the praise? The smart people. If God reveals it to the simple, like us, who gets the praise? Well, God does. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. And turning to His disciples, He said privately, Blessed are your eyes because you see these things. And He says the same thing about many prophets and kings wish to see these things. Men that are better than you, but they didn't see them. And to hear these things, but they didn't hear them. But you do. May we always remember that, we, that when we know spiritual truths that seem to be hidden from others, it's not because we're wise and intelligent, but it's because we are blessed, we are happy, we are in a fortunate state. We shouldn't boast. It's the mercy of God. Now let's turn from this word blessed to this term revealed. Apocalypto. It's where we actually get the word apocalypse, but he's not talking about some sort of end times thing here. It means to reveal, to disclose, to unveil, or to make plainly obvious. How are these truths revealed or made plainly obvious? Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal it to you, but your Father is in heaven. So it's not flesh and blood. What's he saying? He's saying, all right, Peter, know this. Your name is Simon. That's what your daddy, John or Jonah, at different times he's called both because it's the same name with just different versions, variations of that name. Blessed that your birth name is Simon, that's what your daddy called you. And, And he taught you well, but all that teaching is not what made you a citizen of the kingdom. In fact, this is not a flesh and blood thing at all. No earthly father or mother or rabbi or teacher could have opened your heart to understand my identity. It's not that man taught it to you. It's one of the reasons, guys, we're Baptist. Y'all have kids? Are they born Christians? I knew my kids when they were little. And I know some of them still. And they ain't Christians yet. But... I'm praying that God will open their eyes and make them citizens of the kingdom of heaven and it will take God to do it. All the catechizing in the world won't do it. 
Flesh and blood cannot reveal it to him. It's got to be through the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit opening their eyes to these truths. You can make them know it by rote memory, but you can't make them love it in their heart. God's got to reveal it to them or it won't happen. It's not flesh and blood, but whom? It's not your father on earth, Simon, son of John. Yeah, you had a good daddy, but my father who is in heaven. You've got to be born again from above in order to be part of the people of God. It's a God thing. It's a heavenly father thing. It is a work of God thing. It is through illumination. It's a blessing of God. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. This sort of revelation is what theologians call illumination. We teach that we can teach the word all we want, but we cannot make a person see its beauty and accept its authority. Apart from illumination, the unregenerate heart will suppress and reject the truth. They might have outward forms of righteousness, but they can't love it heart deep. You can make little Pharisees, but you can't make little Christians without a work of the Holy Spirit changing the hearts of the sons of man. We see this doctrine taught throughout Scripture in John 1, as many as received him, John 1, 12 and 13. To them he gave the right to become the children of God, even those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man. You see the similarity? But of God. They're born of God if they're God's people. 1 Peter 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. It's because I chose Jesus. No, guys, it's because Jesus chose you. It's because God chose you. He caused you to be born again. You didn't cause yourself to be born when you were born the first time. And if you're born again, you didn't cause it the second time. God did that. All praise, honor, and glory be to God. 1 Corinthians 2, 12 through 14. We receive not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we might know the things freely given to us by God. It took the Spirit of God being given to us so that we might know the things that were freely given to us by God. Otherwise, you can't know them. So that is a necessary condition. Which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they must be spiritually appraised. You've got to be given new birth. The disciples were not finally convinced of Jesus' messiahship or divinity because of his teachings or his miracles, as amazing as those were. Those things alone would no more convince the twelve or Peter himself to be able to say, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, than they had the thousands of other people who heard the same truths and witnessed the same miracles, but failed to accept and follow the one who taught and performed them. Were the disciples smarter? No. They were in a blessed, chosen state by God himself. They couldn't boast. All praise, honor, and glory to God. The disciples were in a blessed state because the Father had illuminated their eyes to see what they would become. And that was to become a foundation. What's that? Look at verse 18. I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I build my church. Well, first I want to look at this Simon's nickname, Peter. It means rock. I can't pass up the opportunity to point out the beauty and symmetry of this text. Simon bestowed a title on Jesus. You are the Christ. 
the Son of the living God. Now, Jesus responds with, you are Peter. Each naming mentions the person's father, son of the living God for Jesus, son of Jonah for Peter. Christ Messiah was a title that implied a functional role. Now Jesus gives Simon a title, a nickname, which, like a fam the famous renamings of the Old Testament, Abram, exalted father, became Abraham, father of nations. There's a change for title. Sarah, but was a exalted mother. She Sarah was exalted mother. She became princess, mother of all the nations. You have Jacob, who was a deceiver. He became Israel, one who would struggle with God and become God's people through struggle and wrestling with God Himself. But also, it, so this again speaks of a future role, a role that's spelled out. While Matthew has used the now familiar name. Peter, throughout his narrative, he's made it clear that Peter was a given name by Jesus. It was a nickname given by Jesus, possibly right here for the first time. And now we're learning how he got the name, but possibly he was called it throughout. And now it's just now he's specifying why he gave him that name. I'm not sure which. But now we get the explanation. The new name, Petros, is the equivalent of the Aramaic Cephas. You ever see the, the word Cephas in the Bible? Sometimes it'll be in that Aramaic form. It's the same thing. You know, sometimes you say, he has, he has three, another name. Well, it's Cephas is all that Jesus ever called him because Jesus spoke Aramaic. So Cephas or Peter if you're speaking Greek. Or Petros if you're speaking Greek. Peter or if you're speaking English, right? But it's all the same thing. It means a stone or a rock. And it's not a Jewish name, really. It, it's, it's really virtually unknown as a personal name in the entire ancient world. I once, Michael Carr calls me Staples to this day because I had a car wreck and got Staples in my head and I said a nickname never stuck with me. So he's like, he, he says, yeah, it did. I still call you Staples. Like, only you call me Staples in the whole universe. But he still does. I mean, his phone is Staples. But it's kind of like that. A name that, no, that's not a name. I mean, how many, how many of your friends are named Staples? You know, none of them. Because it's not a name, it's a nickname because of something. Well, that's the same thing here with Peter, or Cephas. It's a nickname because of something. It was not even a given name of anybody that we can find in any ancient literature. It, Peter's a name now, see? But it wasn't then. So Jesus chose it for Simon with the purpose of looking toward its literal meaning. He is to be a rock. And one with important, the important function of a rock. You know, upon this rock... Something's going to be built. A foundation. If you build on sand, it falls. If you build on a rock, something stands. So on this rock, Jesus will build his church. And it will be forever secure. Now, how many of you are like, oh, You just said Peter's a rock. I, I did. And I've tried to reason my way out of it. And guys, I, I go where the scriptures take me when I'm doing exegesis. And if I've taught it wrong before, you know what I do when I get up and I get to the text and I bear down and I realize, you know what, I've taught it wrong before? I ain't crow because I don't care what you think about me anyway. You're like, well, they might trust you less. Good. I don't want you to trust me anyway. I want you to search things out in the Scripture. Believe me as much as what the Scriptures say and throw out anything I say that's wrong. Amen? All the authorities from the Scripture. So there's tons of objections to Peter being the rock. It just doesn't feel right. Shouldn't Jesus be the rock? Or perhaps it, it, it's this profession that Peter just made. But it seems like Peter, which means rock, is the rock that he's talking about. Many expositors have tried to wiggle out of the most apparent meeting. I've used these. I've been reluctant to say the other. But one is the Petros-Petra objection. You have to know 
you, people get down in the, in the Greek to try to explain it away. Peter is Petros in Greek. But Jesus used the feminine noun, Petra, the second time he uses it in the sentence. Thou art Petros, but upon this Petra I build my church. And some say a distinction, not an identification is being made. But there's a problem here. Jesus didn't speak Greek to the disciples. Remember that? What language did Jesus speak? He spoke Aramaic. And in Greek, you get these masculine, feminine inflections, but they don't exist in Aramaic. Both times he used it, when he said it in Aramaic, it would have been Cephas, and it would have been Cephas. Both times. The reason for the different Greek form is that Peter is a man, so he, he gets a masculine name. So the form Petros has been coined by Matthew when writing the Greek for the man's name. He wasn't going to call him Petra because he was a man. So even though Petra, stone, was a feminine noun, he says Petros because Jesus had went around today with all of this gender confusion stuff and he used the right pronouns. That's all it is. He had more sense than modern man, so he's like, okay, I'm not going to call him Petra, but he is the rock, so he's Petros. So, but it would have, it would, if he was speaking Greek, that would have been the reasoning. That was Matthew's reasoning, clearly, for changing it here, I think. Just because he's describing it as Petros, because he's a man. Matthew knew the difference between a man and a woman, and rightly gendered Peter because the difference in conjugation changes nothing. The flow of the sentence still makes it clear that a wordplay is intended to identify Peter as the rock. So that, you see why that objection really doesn't seem to hold water? The next one, the testimony objection. But he's not talking about, thou art Peter, and upon this testimony you just made, I'll build my church. That's a second escape route to claim that the foundation rock is not Peter himself, but his faith in the Messiah. I've used that one. I've used that one from the pulpit here, and I've used it not too long ago. I said it in a sermon. If that's what Jesus had attended, then his word choice is pretty poor. The wordplay points decisively toward Peter, to whom personally he has been given the name as Rock. And there's nothing in this statement to suggest otherwise. Let me give you an example. Ava, you know, anybody know what Ava's name means? It means the living one. If I were to say, you are Ava, and upon this living one I will plant my kiss, she would turn her cheek toward me. <laughs> right? Because she wouldn't be thinking, oh, you're talking about something I just said. You use the meaning of the name... If she, and she does know the meaning of her name. Yourself. Well, she doesn't know what She does know. right? But she would turn her cheek toward me because that's the natural way she would have understood it. And Jesus was communicating with Peter. He wouldn't have been veiled and confusing. Thou art Cephas, and upon this Cephas I build my church. Obviously, Peter would have understood it. You're talking about me. So that doesn't really hold any weight, does it? Because I think Jesus is a better communicator than I, than I am. And I think he would have communicated in a way that made sense to the person he was communicating to. The pointing objection. This one, this one cracked me up. Even more bizarre is the claim that Jesus, having declared Simon to be Petros, then instead pointing to himself and said, Upon this rock, Thou art Cephas, but upon this Cephas I build my church. But that's dangerous, isn't it? To make an interpretive decision about a key text of Scripture by inserting a non-verbal cue that's not mentioned in the text and saying that that happened and that that's actually how we should understand the text. That is, that's what I call the exegesis of desperation. <laughs> You're desperate when you start grasping at that straw, aren't you? 
If we make those sorts of interpretive choices, we could deny the resurrection by saying Jesus had his fingers crossed behind his back when he said that he was the resurrection and the life and that anybody that believed in him would not die. We can just put all kinds of just nonverbal cues and make the scriptures mean anything we want to at that point, can't we? Make scriptures a wax nose. We can't do that. And the last objection is that Jesus is the rock, so Peter can't be. Objection. That one is the reason this feels so icky to us, isn't it? It's like, well, wait, 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 wait. We're not built on Peter. We're built on Christ. They even quote Peter here, and it's one of the reasons I have gone here as well. Peter says, coming to him as a living stone. As a living what? Petros. Yeah. Coming to him as a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer a spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, again the word, a precious cornerstone, speaking of Jesus, again. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for all who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, stone again, became the chief storner stone again, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. <clears throat> you say, well, what do you do with that? Well, biblical metaphors are commonly used in various ways. Here, Jesus build his, builds his church in, in our immediate text, right? But in 1 Corinthians 3.10, Paul calls himself an expert builder, doesn't he? Well, who's the builder, Paul or Jesus? Well, Jesus ultimately, but Paul still truly. 1 Corinthians 3, Jesus is the church's cornerstone, its foundation. No other foundation shall be given but Jesus Christ. But in Ephesians 2, 19 through 20, it says, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Which one's the, corner, which one's the foundation? Uh, also, Peter, he's given the keys here, but in Revelation 1, 18 and 3, 17, it says that Jesus has the keys to the kingdom. And in 9, 5, it says Jesus is the light of the world, but in Matthew 5, 14, it says the disciples are the light of the world. But none of this threatens Jesus' uniqueness is what we've got to realize. Whatever we are, we are because of Him in us. It doesn't mean that He's not it ultimately, but it does mean that we, as He lives in and through us, we are still it truly. When Scripture says we're united with Christ, when it says we are one with Christ, when it says that He works in and through us, He ain't just whistling Dixie. That's real. He truly is. We are one with Christ. He, we are the bride of Christ. When we say it about Christ in some real way, not an ultimate way, but in a true way, it's about us who are united to Christ as well. Why? Because I'm crucified with Christ, but nevertheless I live. Yet not I who lives, but Christ who lives in me in the life that I now live in the body. I live through faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So, just because it says Jesus is the rock in many places in Scripture, it doesn't mean that Peter's not a rock too. It can't be ascribed to him as well. So, Peter as the rock. If, given, if you're convinced now with me that that's what it's saying, we need, to, we need to say, well, what is it saying and what isn't it saying? When we come to difficult texts like this, we want to get it right. And we dare not say too much, but likewise, we dare not say too little. Amen? We have to broaden our focus to the rest of Scripture to see how this concept works its way out in other texts. But let me tell you emphatically what it's not saying. There's nothing about an office being started here that had absolute authority over the church. We're not looking at the starting of the, pa the papacy. 
We're not talking about papal infallibility. None of that is here at all. There certainly was not an office that could be passed on to others. Where do you see that in the text? That's quite the jump, isn't it? You are Peter, and upon this rock, there's going to be a succession of people with you that have absolute authority over the church and can speak infallibly to the church during their time throughout all the ages of church history. Do you think it's saying that? It's not saying that at all. There's no indication that Peter had greater authority among the twelve than any any other early Christian leaders. He didn't, he didn't send the other apostles, but he was actually sent by the other apostles and submitted to them in Acts 8.14. James soon emerged as the leader of the Jerusalem church in Acts 21.18. Paul openly rebuked Peter in, in front of everybody in Antioch in Galatians 2.11. Papal infallibility? Paul didn't think so, did he? And when the Lord spoke the words recorded here in 1618 and 19, he certainly didn't mean that Peter could now begin to lord it over the other disciples. And the other disciples certainly didn't understand it that way either. Just a little later, in Matthew 18:1, at that time the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who's the greatest in the kingdom? They didn't say, Well, obviously Peter's the greatest in the kingdom because, you know, a chapter and a half ago you said, Upon Peter, I, upon this rock, I build my church. Well, that didn't happen. They were still arguing. They, they thought they were the greatest. I mean, even in their own sin and their own arrogance, they're not understanding it the way that it's often presented by the, by the Catholic Church, are they? I also see that in chapter 20, 20 through 24. And Jesus definitely rejected such interpretations as well, telling them that we, they shouldn't even be thinking about who's greatest and who's least. And Peter himself didn't understand Jesus' words as elevating him above the rest of the apostles or even other, over other elders. Listen to 1 Peter 5.1 when Peter wrote, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder. He didn't say, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as the rock upon which the church is built and submit to my authority because I'm higher than all of you. That's not there, is it? Just the opposite. He had this great humility. To put it as plainly as I know how, there's not a shred of biblical evidence that Peter was made bishop over the whole church or that any special office was transmitted from him to anyone else ever, period. The period's on the page, but just for emphasis, I wrote period in all capital letters too because it's a emphatic period. That's not what it's saying. But what is it saying? Well, it's saying that there is some special importance attached to Peter. The New Testament clearly gives him a certain prominence in every list of apostles. Who's named first? Who knows? Every single time, Peter's named first. Peter was always in the innermost circle around Jesus. Peter, James, and John. It was Peter who boldly made the confession here at Caesarea Philippi. Peter was the first one Paul named in his list of people to whom Christ appeared after the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15.5. Peter was the spokesman who called together the 120 believers in Jerusalem following the ascension of Christ in Acts 1.15. Peter preached the sermon on the day of Pentecost where the church had 5,000 people added in one day in Acts 2.14. Paul calls Peter the apostle to the Jews, not an apostle to the Jews, but the apostle to the Jews in Galatians 2.8. Peter was the foremost of the apostles. And although I hate this term when applied to elders, it's certainly true about Peter among the apostles. He was the first among equals. That's the way to look at it. Why? Because of his boldness, his, his courage, his lack of... His, his desire to not compromise, to assertively stand up. Now, was he perfect in that? He was the one that denied Christ three times, wasn't he? Perfect in it. 
but he was exemplary. And it's commended to us his example to look, to let us be bold like he's bold. And that kind of boldness will build the kingdom. It will. So Peter's a great example to us in that way. And in the primary or basic sense of the term, there's only one foundation, and that foundation is not Peter, but Christ himself. It is still true. 1 Corinthians 3, 11, No man can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. But in a secondary sense, it's entirely legitimate to speak of the apostles, including Peter, as the church's foundation. For these men were always pointing away from themselves to Jesus Christ as the one and only Savior. You get striking examples of this. Acts 3.12, when Peter saw this, there were people trying to worship because they had, they had healed people. And he replied to the people, they said, Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? And why do you gaze at us as if we by our own power or piety made him walk? He's always saying, it's not us. We're doing it, yeah, but who's ultimately doing it? Christ in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. He, this is Peter's sermon in Acts 4.11. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but became the chief's cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which men must be saved. Let's now explore this concept of the apostles as the foundation of what that means. It matters. But how are we to understand it? If Jesus is the foundation, how are the apostles the, under, uh, the foundation? Ephesians 2, 19 through 20. I'm going I'm to read it for you. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's own household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets... Christ Jesus himself is the cornerstone. You have both here together, don't you? Christ is the cornerstone, but there's also the, uh, the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. How are the apostles foundational? What, do, what does Ephesians 2.20 say is the foundation? Look at, look at both things it says. The apostles and whom else? The prophets, both. Why? Well, the prophets looked forward to the coming of Christ, and that's what the Old Testament is. We would recognize, they told us how we would recognize the Christ, the person of Christ, when he came. That's what the whole Old Testament is about. Listen on the road to Emmaus, uh, when Jesus had risen from the dead. And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. So they laid the foundational understanding of who Jesus would be so they would recognize him when he came. You see the role they played? We don't know what Jesus is going to be without looking back at the prophets telling us what he would be and seeing if Jesus matches up. Jesus is the cornerstone, but they're the foundation for us to understand who the cornerstone is. Right? Does that make sense? It's not hard to understand, is it? And what about the apostles? Well, the apostles aren't looking forward to the coming of Jesus. Why? Because he already came. And they walked around with him. And they knew him. They saw him. They talked to him. They touched him. Listen to John. 1 John 1, 1-4. What was from the beginning? 
What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested. And we've seen and testify and proclaim to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we've seen and heard, we proclaim to you also so that you might have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Hey, we're not looking forward to Him coming anymore. We actually walked around with this guy and we're witnessing for you. We're witnesses of him, telling you, looking back on him, telling you what we experienced and that he really was Christ. They're the foundation, looking back. But what's the cornerstone that holds it all together? Prophets, looking forward. Apostles, looking back. Jesus, cornerstone. That's exactly what's being said. These apostles experienced Christ and told us as eyewitnesses how Jesus fulfilled the prophetic expectations and what he accomplished in front of their eyes. That's the New Testament. The Christ corner, the, the cornerstone is Christ. The foundation is the revelation of Christ from the prophets and the apostles in Scripture. We have an accurate account of life and teachings and revelation of Christ through the Scriptures in the New Testament telling us what He actually did. The, you know that Scripture in John, when I go away, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you? the Spirit would make sure that they got it right and remembered it all right. That's what we have through the apostles. I have many other things to teach you, he says just two chapters later. But you cannot see them now. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you in all truth, for he will not speak of his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you disclose to you what is to come. And he shall glorify me, for he shall take of mine and disclose it to you. So not only would they remember everything, but they would interpret it rightly and understand the implications of it. And that's what we have in the entire New Testament as the foundation of our faith. Guys, you want to hear the voice of God? Read the Bible. You want to read it out loud? Read it out loud. Right? Then you'll hear it out loud. And you can hear the voice of God out loud. Go ahead. You can practice it at home. But the voice of God is in these scriptures. The foundation is the prophets and the apostles. Just read your Bible. And you'll know Jesus Christ. Peter was the foremost of those, and he understood his role. Listen how Peter points to it. 2 Peter 3, 1-2. I stir up your minds, your pure minds, by way of reminder, that you're mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. You see it? He got it too. I want, remember this. We're, we're the foundation only because we're pointing to the cornerstone. But we are the foundation. So be mindful of what the Old Testament said about Christ and of what we say in the New Testament about Christ. That's how we know God. We see, again, this Old and New Testament foundation coming together again in the words of Jesus also in Luke 24. But listen to this. He said, Luke 24, 44 through 47... Not, this is not just men on the road to Emmaus, but he's back with his disciples. And he said, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds, there's illumination, to understand the Scriptures. And opened the minds of the disciples, the apostles, to understand the Scriptures. And he said to them, This is written that Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So now you're going to take my message as my apostles to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. 
Jerusalem and all the way out. Why? Because you are now taking over their mantle, all the Old Testament. Now you've seen me. Now you're going to go and bear witness to me to all the nations while you're still alive before my coming of judgment in 70 AD and this gospel was spread throughout all of the known world. And guess what happened? It did. <laughs> it certainly did. Alright. I know we spent a long time on the second point. But I thought it was important because if I get something wrong and I teach you all wrong and then I'm changing, I want you to understand I was wrong. Here's why I now believe I was wrong. I now understand why I had it wrong and what is right. And now you can have it right too. And I'm going to belabor that point because I had to convince myself of it and I want you to understand why I made a sudden change and it didn't happen willy-nilly. Okay? But now moving on in our text. That we have illumination and we have the foundation that I hope we now understand. But the foundation is for something that's going to be built upon it. It's for something that's going to be created. A creation. What is being created he will build what on this foundation? I will build my church. I love the definite nature of this text. I, the Christ, the Son of God, will build my church. I will not try to build my church. I will build my church. But what is this church that he's building? Well, he's building a new people of God, first of all. A new people of God. Called out ones. That's actually what the word means. Ecclesia. I'm, I'm making a new people. Ecclesia was a common Greek term for an assembly of people. But in the Jewish context, it would have been particularly heard as echoing its frequent use in the Septuagint, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew Scriptures. It was the assembly of the people of God. It always meant the national community of Israel. But now Jesus speaks with extraordinary boldness saying, My Ecclesia. There's, there's a different people of God. There's a new called out ones. Not national Israel, but a new new people that I'm establishing. The unusual Greek order draws particular attention to the word my. I will build not the assembly, but my assembly. There's something different happening in me. Since I'm the Christ, since I'm the son of the living God, since I'm the authority over all nations, I'm building something new. My assembly won't be the same as it was before. The word's an Old Testament word, one proudly owned by the people of Israel as defining their identity as the people of, of God. But the coming of Israel's Messiah will cause that assembly to be reconstituted. And the focus of its identity will not be the nation of Israel, but the Messiah himself. It is his assembly, my church. How much did the disciples understand about the reconstituted people of God? Well, a bunch, if they've been paying attention. You remember back in Matthew 8, when he told the Roman centurion, when he said, Truly, I say to you, 8, 10 through 12, I've not found so great a faith in anyone in Israel... I say to you that many will come from the east and west from all these other nations and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God. But the sons of the kingdom, those that are really of Israel, will be cast out into outer darkness. There's a new people being constituted and it's not just ethnic Israel. It's people from everywhere. They're all going to be coming in. I will build that. He's been building it for a long time now. And he ain't done. And he's going to keep building He's constituting a new people. Has Jesus not had a has not Jesus not in our immediate context had a better reception when he miraculously fed four thousand Gentiles than when he miraculously fed five thousand Jews the chapter before? Remember that? That's what he's saying. There's something new happening. Peter's recognizing it. He's not just the Christ, he's God incarnate on the earth, constituting a new people, a new assembly, a new ecclesia. 
There's going to be a new international people of God. And what is this assembly of people being built into? Well, there's temple language here too throughout the Bible. The metaphors of foundation or rock and building go together. The building will be used frequently in the New Testament for the development of the church as the new temple to replace the old one that's going to be torn down in 70 AD. But there, now you say there's no temple anymore. Yeah, there is. And you're part of it. Built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles constituted in Christ whose temple, his body was literally torn down and he's raised again and we're being built upon him by faith and indwelled by the Holy Spirit of the living God. You want to be, you want to be in the presence of God now? Be with other believers because he dwells in and among us as believers. That's what's going on. The metaphor of a new temple has already been introduced in Matthew. Remember, he says something greater than the temple is here in 12.6. And the theme will become more prominent as we progress through the book in the destruction of the temple being prophesied in chapter 24. And the charge that Jesus planned to destroy the temple and then rebuild it in three days in 26, 6 through 1 and 27.40. The, term, the Greek term ecclesia never denotes a physical structure in the New Testament, but always a community of people. Always. Guys, we don't go to church. We are the church. We assemble as the church. We assemble as the temple of the Holy Spirit. And God works powerfully by the gifts of the Spirit. This is not a show for you to attend while Matt preaches to us. It is a place for you to attend with the gift of the Holy Spirit, using them in context with one another, sharpening and being sharpened. That's what a church has to do to be a powerful church. It's always the people. Together, united in these common ideals on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles, saying this is our ultimate authority and we're being built by submitting to this, by learning together in community with one another and being purified by the sacrifice of Christ. That's happening when we assemble. We are spiritual stones with sovereign placement. 1 Peter 2, 4-5, through 5, coming to Him as a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. But you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. We, by faith, are being built up on top of that foundation to make an impact on the rest of the entire world. The people of God, the assembly of God, the temple of God built on the foundation, the body of Christ. There is no Christianity without the church. The church is what Christ is building. I saw someone post on Facebook the other day, I didn't leave God, I left the church. The church is the people who God is building together for a purpose. If you left them, you're not part of it. There's no Christianity apart from the church. It's what He's building. It's where the Holy Spirit dwells. And if you go out from the church, they went out of, uh, from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out from us so that it might be made obvious or manifest that they were not of us. A, re a religionless Christianity, a me and Jesus on a Jesus cloud Christianity, a me and Jesus I'm thinking about God while I'm fishing on a boat Christianity, that's not Christianity. You can, have, you can call your religion whatever you want to call it, but it's not Christianity. Jesus is building His church. You're part of that building because He's grafted you in by faith and you're blessed to recognize it and to submit to Him in context with the temple of God on that foundation or you're not part of it. 
Guys, should that create an urgency in you for your unchurched Christian people? Yes, it should. They're either Christians who are in direct rebellion against God and need to repent of that and are going to be judged and brought back through discipline when you should care about that, or they're not Christians at all. It's one or the other. And we should have an urgency to show them you've got a greater purpose than living like the whole rest of the world with this little hope of Jesus so He takes you to heaven when you die. There's something bigger than that. And the last point that I'm going to get to. Upon this rock, I will build my church. And I called this last point colonization. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Why did I choose colonization? Well, the main reason is because I can And I'm a little bit mischievous, and I like doing stuff sometimes, just because. But is that not a buzzword these days? It is, isn't it? And one that is inexplicably, it makes everybody angry. Oh, you're such a colonizer. Uh, yeah. To organize people in an orderly way, to help them escape the prejudices and biases of a false religion so that they can live under the rule and reign of Christ, that's colonization. Sign me up. I want to be that guy, don't y'all? I want, well, well, they believe their religion's just as strongly as you do. I know, and I've got to help them recover from that because they're on their way to hell. And look at how they're living. Loin, cloths, chunk, and spears, some of them. And they come out of that, don't they, Isaac? We've got to help people realize that there's something better and that there is a greater form of life and way to live. Do you not understand that the nations around the world, what they're like, those that haven't been deeply impacted by the gospel? Slavery? Well, I'm glad slavery is abolished. Well, guys, there's more slavery on this planet today than there's ever been. More than ever. Right? sex trade, murder, theft, and much of that is condoned and participated in by the governments of these other nations with no trials. There's no such thing as innocent until proven guilty. There's a, you're a nuisance and I've got more power than you, I now will kill you. There's no, the law is king. There's a, I'm the king because I say so. That's every other nation. If Caesar is Lord, then whatever Caesar says, go. If there's a divine right of kings, you die because he says so. Herod's having a party, gets a little too drunk, makes a silly promise. She wants the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Well, he's the king. Bring him in here. We'll chop his head off and bring him on a platter. Who's going to stop him? Nobody. Why? Because that's how nations work where Jesus is a Lord. And we want to recover people from that. We want to go into all the world, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching all the nations to observe all things whatsoever Christ has commanded because they might be kings, but He's King of kings. They might be lords, but He's Lord of lords. And there's an authority higher than them. And when the people know that, it changes the world. It turned the Roman Empire upside down, and it still has the power to do it today, but we've laid down like dogs instead of standing like men. Filled with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit and the gifts are ours. A mighty fortress is our God. The kinds of things we sing with power instead of the Jesus is my boyfriend songs that are so popular today. The Martin Luther stood up and stared down the Catholic Church and the Roman Empire and said, kill me if you will. God's truth abides still. And it changed the world. Made everything better for a while. 
And the farther we get away from Jesus as Lord, look at what's coming back in our world today. 60 million abortions. People mutilating their children and fighting for the right to get to. And Christians saying, well, it is their right. You know, we don't want to take away parental rights to mutilate their children. What in the world kind of society do we live in? We live in a society that's gone back on Jesus as Lord and embraced democracy. You want to know what democracy is? Two wolves and a sheep voting on what to have for dinner. That's democracy. But a republic says, this is truth. And all the kings and all the people stand on the solid ground underneath that. They stand level underneath that. And the law is applied the same to everybody. You get away from these principles and have people with no fear of God before their eyes and we collapse into what we're collapsing into. We reclaim that and we rise out of it. And we see colonization again. And we see the power of God work mightily through His people. And we see a good society come back. The gates of hell will not prevail against a church that's militant. No, what, what? The church what? Yeah, that used to be something we said a lot. The church militant. Where's that language? The church triumphant. Where's that language? No, the church defeated and hoping for the rapture. That's the new language. No, no. Rise up, O oh man of God. Stand up, O oh man of God. To set people free in Christ is a good thing. It's not arrogant to say Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And that a government under His easy yoke is, blessed, is, is a blessed people. That that's the only way you're going to have a true free people to do what God's called them to do and to fulfill their duties. Otherwise, you'll have tyranny telling you you can't fulfill your duties and trying to take your rights away. They're endowed by our Creator and we stand on them. We do not colonize with a sword, but with the truth of the gospel. And even though there's no swords involved, they don't have to be. It will advance. Just like the certitude of I will build my church that we see here, the gates of hell will not prevail against this church, this new assembly, this new people of God. I'm almost done, but I want to make two more points. Gates are defensive, not offensive. Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The gates of hell have often been interpreted as evil forces of Satan attacking the church of Jesus Christ. But gates are not instruments of warfare, are there? Nobody attacks with gates. Have you ever heard somebody say, Run, look out! He has a gate! No. No, of course not. A gate is not used to conquer, but it's used to protect those behind the gates from being conquered. Or in this case, uh, or, or in the case of a prison, to keep the captured from escaping. So what is it saying? Hell's defenses, they have people ensnared by the devil. We storm the gates and they can't keep us out and we rescue people. They were storming the gates. We rescue them and they can't stop us because the gospel's that powerful. I like that, don't y'all? That's what it does. Hell's defenses will not prevail as the gospel goes on the offensive to win people to Christ, to raise the dead to life, to conquer the world for King Jesus. Hell can't thwart the advance of the gospel. The church will overcome hell's defenses and Christ will build His church. Hell's defensive measures are no match for Christ's church. Why? Because judgment has come on this world. John 12, 31-32. And the ruler of this world will be cast out if I am lifted up. And he was, wasn't he? He will draw all men to Himself. He's building His church on that foundation. Isn't it a blessing to be part of it? Kind of gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You so much for Your Word. We thank You for the encouragement we get from it. 
Lord, the fact that uh, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Lord, we pray. We sing, sing the old hymn sometimes, Oh, victory in Jesus. Lord, we believe that that is what you have in store for your people. God, bless us. Rise up on our behalf. Work in us powerfully and mightily. Lord, that we would be a pure church, a solid church, unmovable church, and that upon this rock you build your church, and that indeed the gates of hell do not prevail against it. It's in Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.